The reading this evening comes from Esther chapter 3, the first six verses of Esther chapter 3. I'll be reading from the New King James. The ESV should pretty much read the same. I might have different verb tenses or different words for the verbs, but nonetheless, it's about the same. Here now, God's holy, infallible word, Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamethatha, the Agite, and advanced him and, and set his seat above the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servant who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether uh, Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy the Jews who were throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus and the people of Mordecai. This concludes the reading of God's holy word. Thus far as the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Sorry, I'm not used to uh, the different little uh, endings of the scriptural reading and the liturgy here, so if I messed it up, please forgive me. <clears throat> the constant enemy to the church throughout the ages has been the decaying culture around her. You can name any century since the ascension of Christ. The culture has always been at war to disrupt the pure worship of God. It's no different from today. Our culture affirms everything except for godliness. And they're trying to muddy up the church's witness and role, in which we have seen with other denominations. We have plenty of examples to choose from. We could point to the PC USA church. They're the most infamous denomination today, and they go with the cultural ones that blows currently. They ordain women. They promote homosexuality. They're advocates for transgenderism. Alongside of them, we have the United Methodist Church, and they're doing the same thing. One would conclude that only happens in liberal denominations, but that's not true. Let's not forget in our conservative circles, conservative denominations, even now, we are wrestling with uh, critical race theory and, and, and that influence and doctrine and practice. In our denomination, we too are in a battle, battle for biblical fidelity. When we face this stuff, what are we supposed to do, especially when the waves of our culture comes crashing all around us? How do we respond to these attacks from our culture when they attack the very truth to which we believe God has spoke to us through his word? Do we run and hide like the monks in their monasteries or the Amish in their communities? Or do we draw a line in the sand and take, take that stand and fight against our culture with the culture of the church like some advocate today? Overall, these questions are not easy to answer, but we do have a solution. As good Reformed Presbyterians, we look to God's Word for guidance and comfort to answer these questions. It is in God's Word we find our shield to block out 
all those cultural influence, the winds of the culture that are trying to blow us away from faithfulness to God and his word. Ironically, our culture attacks that very thing to which we find our comfort in God's word. For example, we say that, that there are only two genders, and we find that actually in Genesis chapter 1, the first page of our Bible, our culture today says, no, there are countless genders. We say that marriage is between one woman and one man. Our culture says, no, no, that's not true. Don't listen to your Bible. Or better yet, we say the preborn life is made in the image of God, and they have worth even at conception. And our culture, in essence, says, no, we don't need to listen to your outdated book. We determine when life is. It's up to the choice of the birthing person whatever that means. Regardless, if you, do like, if you like it or not, we will have to take a stand against our culture. Why? Because our culture is not covenanted with God. Instead, they have made an agreement with the principalities and powers of this age by ignoring everything that is godliness. By doing so, they, in effect, have made war with Christ and his kingdom. Nonetheless, Christ is above this culture, and he is reigning now. And this brings us to our passage in Esther chapter 3. What I want us to do this, this evening is to look at Mordecai's example in our scripture passage and to find that encouragement that we need to stand when the culture attacks. It doesn't mean that you will experience what Mordecai experienced here, nor does it mean that you should look for a fight like others want us to do. Instead, I want us to find Mordecai's example as an encouragement so that we may live godly lives regardless of the noise from the outside. The main thing I want all of us to glean from, even myself, is this. Christians must live boldly for God and his law or word in the presence of this world. And by doing so, our faith will come under fire. But that same fire that our faith is under will help purify us to stand before God as a witness to this world. What I mean by his law is namely the Ten Commandments, which is really based on two principles, loving God and loving people. By the way of clarification, before anyone jumps down on me, I get it. We, I, I will have to explain this later, but we are not justified by the works of the law. I'm not advocating work-righteous salvation, nor am I saying this that we are saved by our faithfulness. We show our gratitude by God by walking in that law to which he has shown us in the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Or to quote the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 97, the answer, the moral law is to show our thankfulness, to express the same greater care to conform ourselves to it as a rule of obedience. Or to sum it up better, as John says in 1 John 5, 3, by this, we know that we are the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Before diving into the first six verses of Esther chapter 3, let's do a brief overview of Esther real quick. Uh, we, do, we don't know who wrote this book. Many say it was Mordecai. Others says it was a contemporary Mordecai. Regardless of the human author, whoever wrote it, we do see the divine author in the pages of the very words of this book. One striking um, uh, feature to this book that we find through and through is that God is not even mentioned once 
So children, when you're on double jeopardy, they ask you a question, is God mentioned in Esther? You know the answer. The answer is no. And this is the only book in our canon that doesn't have God or prayer listed in. But we see God's fingerprints through his providential care of the Jewish people through Mordecai and Esther. And that's so beautiful because we all love this book, or at least I do, especially in the movies that they try and portray for us every year during um, the festival. Um, I can't remember the name of the festival off the top of my head now. Um, but we see the God Spirit as the author of this book. The drama, real quick, the first two chapters of Esther, essentially the developing chapters to which we jump into our drama. We see in chapter 1 that even the queens of Persia could be ousted out and even executed at the command of the king. We see that Esther finds favor with the king and actually becomes the new queen of Persia, which is a great thing. At the end of chapter 2, we see Mordecai, Esther's cousin, who becomes her guardian. He stops a plot to murder the king and saves the king's life. And what we do notice at the end of chapter 2, he was never awarded that for those actions. This brings us to our passage. If you read uh, verses 1 through 2 with me, it says this, After these things, the king um, Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agai, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were within his court. Right away, we see this man, Haman, being promoted. We don't know what event or events or actions Haman did to be promoted, but nonetheless, he found favor by the king of Persia. He was given great honor. We get to notice actually something about Haman, his heritage in verse 1. He is the son of a very prominent um, Haggai, or Agag, right? Haggai, right? His, his father's name was, if I'm going to butcher this, I've been butchering it all week, but uh, Hemethida, right? I know you guys are all biblical scholars in here. Where do we find this term Agag? Well, if we look at Numbers 24, verse 7, we see Balaam uses, uses this term Agag as a pronouncement over Israel. And how he uses this term, it's not a city or a people, it's a title. Just like Pharaoh is to Egypt, we all know what Pharaoh is. It's a king of Egypt. Likewise, Agag is a title for a king or a chief. This is important because most of us, or most if not all the commentaries that we could come across, they connect Hagag with the, with the Amalekites, the sworn enemy of Israel. So if we were connecting the biblical data here, this is the very people to which King Saul was supposed to devote to destruction in 1 Daniel, but doesn't do it. And we see that the, the offspring of these people taking a prominent role in Persia and the, the rise of pagan people in this very land, ascended to the highest courts. The sword enemies of God are now in charge of Persia. We mentioned that the king bestows great blessings on honor and status on Haman, and we don't know exactly why, but we do see that the king at the end of verse 1 advanced Haman and set his seat above all the princes who were with him in the court. In the ancient world, if your seat was elevated by one step, your status was different. You were a different social class. We see the symbolism here and also the literalism of what Haman received by the king. He now outranks all the princes and officers of the king's court. For those in the military, this is similar to like a peer who's promoted to a higher rank than you. Though you and he were once the same rank and you 
informalities and conversation, once they are promoted, they're no longer your peer. They're your superior. And if you are walking by them, if they outrank you, if they're an officer, you have to render the proper salute, even though you knew this person before they were promoted. This is exactly what's happening here in our passage. Notice something in uh, verse 2. It says this in verse 2, that the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. Why? It was the king's commandment or command here. The ESV and the New King James uses the term homage, whereas the King James renders it as reverence. This is obviously a way to pay respect to this newly promoted man. And we notice that in verse 2, what type of posture to which the inferiors, if you want to call them that, had to pay respect. They had to bow down to Haman. Those within the gates had to show their respect to this newly promoted man by that posture of bowing down. But check this out. The Hebrew word for command, savah, in our section, is the same word that the Lord God commands Adam when he says, do not eat. I command you not to eat from the knowledge of the the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The king of Persia, likewise, is ordaining everyone to bow down, just like God ordained Adam not to eat from that forbidden fruit. The king here is ordaining everyone in his courts to bow down to Haman and pay homage to him. Do you see that there in verse 2? But then the drama begins for us at the end of verse 2. Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. The glaring question on my mind and probably on some of your minds this evening is, why did Mordecai resist essentially what the king had decreed here? It's not like his disobedience could be unnoticed. It's hard to hide in the courtyard when everyone's laying on the ground before you and you're the only one standing up. Before I answer the why, I think it's important to check out what occurs in the following verses in verse 3 and 4. Everyone in the king's court noticed that Mordecai was resisting the king's command. We see that in verse 3 when it says, The servants within the gates said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? The servants knew that Mordecai was resisting what they would say a lawful order. Being good friends, they were confronting Mordecai for his disobedience. Now check this out. The servants did not come to Mordecai once, but several times. Verse 4 actually indicates that they came to him daily. Now we don't know how long this daily, you know, um, calling out Mordecai happened. It could have been several days. It could have been a week or a couple of weeks. The text doesn't really tell us how long, but in my opinion, it could have been at least one week. They continually asked Mordecai, why are you breaking the king's command daily and warning him that if you continue to do this, just like the previous king, the king or queen, the king will take your head. They're trying to be good friends here. But notice what Mordecai's response to his friends was in verse 4. He would not listen. Whatever the reason, which I haven't explained yet, which we'll dive in a little bit very soon, (laughs) Whatever the reason, Mordecai would not bow to Haman, and he was truly convicted by that. This is something likened to uh, Martin Luther's uh, Diet of Verbs back in the Reformation in 1521, how Luther was like, I cannot recant to do so as to go against the word of God and conscience itself. Mordecai is doing the very same thing right here in Persia. But there's a couple of things we notice in verse 4 and 5. 
or 3 and 4. First, they reported this to Haman. His friends reported this to Haman for the purpose to see whether or not Haman would stand on his words. You see, beloved, they are testing Mordecai to see if he's truly convicted by what he is doing. They essentially want to see if Mordecai would actually follow this principle. And for them, it's a win-win situation. If Mordecai listens to them and bowed down after they report this to Haman, well, they just saved a friend, right? That's a win. Also, if he decides to continue in his disobedience against the king of Persia, not just Haman, but the king, guess what? They report this to the newly promoted man, Haman, and also they won favor in the Haman's eyes. They're getting right with the right people. So it's a win-win situation. But the second thing that we notice as well, which I think it helps us to understand this passage more, is Mordecai's response. He tells them, I'm a Jew. I am a Jew. Why did Mordecai not bow? This is troubling because our text doesn't explicitly give us a, a motive for Mordecai. Initially, my first thought, and probably your thought right now, is that it had to do something with their heritage, right? Because he says, I'm a Jew, and this guy's from the Amalekites, right? And it has to do something with that. That would make sense. Or maybe Mordecai was just following David's commands in Psalm 15, verse 4. It says, in a vile person, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, right? And that's what Haman's doing. He's despising a vile person, which we don't know anything about Haman, but if we look at verse 2, we get several clues for Mordecai's reason. First, we notice that the king and the court was commanded by the king to bow to Haman. And the Hebrew word is kara, which simply means to bend the knee or prostrate. It has an etymology of being subdued, right? So that's our first hint. And our second hint is that they had to pay homage to Haman. This word for homage is actually the same word that Abraham Abraham did to God when God came and visited him at his tent before God and the angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy those cities. So we see that he is commanded to to be subdued and also to worship Haman. This is becoming all the more clear for us, beloved. This motive for disobedience, civil disobedience, was seen as uh, as to uh, uh, reject this civil command to give divine worship. Mordecai believed that bowing down and paying homage to Haman would be breaking God's law because he saw it in two ways. One, being subdued to a false god and then worshiping that false god, Haman. You see that there. Matthew Poole notices this, and he says this in his um, commentary. The worship required was not only civil but divine I want to connect what Matthew Poole says, actually, to a Jewish commentary, which depicts a graver situation. It's in your handout. It's called uh, Perke de Rabbi Eleazar, chapter 50, verse 5. I probably butchered the pronunciation of that, but it is what it is. They could deal with it later. This is what the commentary says. What did Haman do? Well, once he was promoted, he made for himself an image of an idol and had it embroidered upon his dress, above his heart, so that everyone who bowed down to Haman also bowed down to this idol, which he made. Mordecai saw this and did not consent to bow down to the idol. As it is said, Mordecai bowed not down, nor did him reverence. Regardless of that Jewish commentary is right or not, the, the point is still the same. The king instructed the entire court to give 
not a civil salute to Haman, but a religious reverence to Haman. By doing so, he's breaking the first and second commandment. And that is what I think we see here in our passage this morning. Mordecai does not obey the king whom in the previous chapter he saved his life from assassination. Why? Because the king is breaking the moral law of God and beloved. We ought to obey the king of kings before we obey the kings of this world, just like Mordecai did. This leads us to actually a doctrinal point today, the doctrine of radical two-kingdom theology. I think it's important to bring up this one critical point for us this evening, especially with issues of modern theology. Right now, we have Reformed brothers and sisters split on this topic of church and state. I'm sure you've heard the term one kingdom versus two kingdom theology and the likes of that. There are many podcasts up out in the world. You could go on YouTube, you watch many lectures on these topics. But one kingdom theology, just to sum it up, means Christ rules over all areas of life. To sum that up, it's Abraham Kuyper's famous statement, throughout all of creation, Christ screamed mine because it's his. He is God. Get that. We see an extreme view of this which is really the application of God's mosaic punishments in today's civil rulers, which leads to a theonomy viewpoint of God's law. Really, it's a transformational view of ethics that they're applying God's law in this world. And to be clear, I know plenty of amillennialist guys who are one kingdom theology and their doctrine, and they don't believe in theonomy. They believe their transformationalism is actually through the preaching of the gospel or sometimes outreach social programs. And the other view, two-kingdom theology, which teaches that God or Christ rules over all, but he rules differently in the church compared to the state. See, the church administers the keys of the kingdom of God by word and sacrament, whereas the state administers the sword to enforce justice, peace, and security. Just like one kingdom theology, there is an extreme side to this, and it's called radical two-kingdom theology, or R2K, which their advocates uh, believe and promote a complete separation of the sacred, the church, and the secular, the civil spheres. The idea is that Christians do not seek to transform the culture, and and anyone who does uh, seek to transform the culture conflates the sacred and the secular my final analysis of the radical two kingdom, I would say it's not technically good. I would, I would reject it wholeheartedly. Why? Because it, it prohibits the church with its prophetic voice in this culture to call this culture to repentance when they break God's law. We are called to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, commanding them or teaching them to follow everything that Christ has commanded. If you're wondering, I am a two-kingdom guy. I'm a classically two-kingdom guy, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith. The problem with one, uh, both sides, one kingdom versus two-kingdom theology that we see online today or through podcasts is really this one problem. We are trying to reinvent something that's already established in our doctrine. Go and read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23. It's very two-kingdom. The church isn't the state, nor is the state the church. The two are, are not the same, but they're not completely separate, right? They have different duties to uphold God's holy laws, which I think one kingdom guys are trying to emphasize. But the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, stresses that governments can call 
godly assemblies or synods or councils, which sounds weird to us as Americans, but that was the norm through church history. If you think about it, the Westminster Confession of Faith was called by the British government to, to better the common book of prayer, right? Sin of Dort. The, if you read the Sin of Dort and their rulings of Calvinism against Arminianism, that was called by the civil leaders of the Dutch people. If you look at the ecumenical councils of the uh, early centuries of the church, that was called by the Roman Empire. That's a good thing. Bottom line, though, as Reformed Presbyterians, we have this doctrine called the mediatorial reign of Christ. Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and our civil rulers must kiss the Son, according to Psalm 2, or they shall perish. The state has an obligation as God's ministers to uphold godly laws, which are found in the moral, natural law, or the Ten Commandments. This is what the larger Catechism 93 states. The moral law is the declaration of God's will, of, or the will of God to all of mankind, directing them and binding everyone. If it's binding on everyone because our nature is made in the image of God, who has written this very law on our hearts, then the moral law applies to those who hold to civil offices in our land. However, those officers in our land, those uh, civil officers cannot minister the keys to the kingdom. They cannot choose pastors for you. They cannot minister the sacraments. They cannot preach the word to you, which our denomination, our tradition fought hard against, against Rome and also the Church of England. This brings us back to Mordecai. Haman, the king, technically, are breaking God's law. And Mordecai has an obligation to follow God's moral law before the king's law. Look at Mordecai's response to his friends in verse 4 again. He says this, I am a Jew. This is Mordecai saying that he is a believer in Jehovah God. Essentially, he's saying, I'm a Christian. Mordecai cannot deny God's revealed will, regardless if his friends are testing him to see if he is truly convicted by that. Notice the last two verses in our passage, Haman's plan, verses 5 and 6. We see that Haman is filled with wrath against Mordecai. The image we have here is very telling. It actually resembles poison. It expresses hot poison in one's body from a scorpion or snake. That venom is burning in Haman's soul. Interestingly enough, that same word for venom here is used to describe Esau's hatred for Jacob after Jacob stole his blessing. This is not in my notes. This is something I came across in my daily reading plan. But if you turn to um, uh, uh, Genesis 36, this is so cool. I, I was blown away with this uh, the other day. Gen- Genesis 36, verse 16. We get to actually see the birth people of the Amalekites. And, and Genesis 36 is actually uh, the, the family of Esau after, after the death of Isaac. Jacob's back in the land. And, you know, the brothers are united. They, they're no longer at war with each other. But we see in verse 16, the, the, the genealogies after Esau, it says here, uh, the, the chiefs of Edom are Chief Korah, Chief Gatim, the Chief Amalek, the Amalekites, the Chief Amalek. And they were the chiefs of Elevaz in the land of Edom. And they were the sons of Adah. So, beloved, we see Haman filled with the same poisonous hate 
wrath that Esau, his father, had for Jacob. He has it now for Haman, but not just for, or for Mordecai. Haman just doesn't have it for Mordecai, but he has it for the entire people of the Jew, Jewish, Jewish nation here. And this is what the, the, the ungodly line, the unelect, the non-elect better yet, are trying to do with God's people. They are trying to exterminate the godly witness in the world, especially in the, uh, the kingdom of Persia. And beloved, you may be facing something similar like Mordecai in your life here. You may be experiencing pressures from within your family to deny God and his will for your life by living the moral law. Or better yet, like most of us probably could relate with working now in the world, you may feel pressures from your current job, from your coworkers to celebrate things that God has called evil. And by all this, you may be discouraged from the constant attacks from our culture against Christ. You may be facing anxiety for trying to live for God's laws while this world is telling you no. Just like Mordecai did, let us remember who we served, who we serve. Our God is the one who has called you for a time such as this. Just like Mordecai and and, and Esther in this book, let us remember to fill our affections with the loveliness of Christ. Why? Because he is the one who has redeemed us from death and he has given us new heart to walk in and his ways, and his laws. He says to you, my dear brothers and sisters, believe this and live while the world tells you, do this and work. What does he say to you that you should believe? To quote John from John chapter 17, this is eternal life to know God, the only true God in whom Jesus Christ you have sinned. Beloved, we believe that, then we ought to live for Christ and do his commandments because he is the one who died for us. He's taken that heart of stone out of our chest and given us a heart of flesh to walk in his ways. He has taken off that filthy rag of righteousness that we thought we had. And he placed it upon himself on that cross and he, give, he gave us his righteousness so that when we walk in this world, people see Christ in us and him crucified. Beloved, I think that's what Mordecai, why Mordecai stood instead of bowing. He loved God. He loved God so much that he was willing to die for his word. But before he had that moment to stand in those courts, Mordecai had years of practicing God's word. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3. He says, the divine power was given to us for all things that pertains to life and godliness, and through the knowledge of God or Christ. Notice that our affections begin with knowing Christ. And by knowing Christ, we know that divine power that pertains to life and godliness. And beloved, you will not know life outside of Christ. You will not know godliness outside of Jesus. That's how we know Christ. That's how we know this life and godliness is by communing with Christ daily in word and prayer and meditating on that. That's what Mordecai did years following up to this. He recited the Shema daily. He did his prayers. He did his devotions. Likewise, let us do that by growing in knowledge in Christ, by reading our word, meditating on it day and night, and praying the words from Scripture in our daily prayers with our families or friends. Once we apply God's law in our minds and hearts, 
by meditation, then we can live them out. We must therefore stand fast when when the culture attacks us. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, when that church in Colossae was facing philosophical debates in their region, he says this in chapter 2, verse 5, rejoice to see your good order and standfastness in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. What do you think it means to be standfast, standfast in the faith? The word standfast is used to fortify a city for military attacks, or better yet, because you know, this is near Fort Bragg or Fort Liberty, whatever, um, is to fortify a military unit, to strengthen a unit so that they could stand the hardest day of God, uh, uh, ground combat. In essence, it means to be firm. It means it cannot be broken. Notice the object to our, our, our firmness is actually found in one thing, faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul says that we must be rooted and built up in Christ, what Paul is saying is, thoroughly, is essentially being thoroughly grounded, having our roots dig deep in that very foundation of the ground and faith of Christ Jesus. Pastor Mock mentioned that God is our rock. That is the foundation. God is our rock, and we stand on that. You may be thinking, how do I do that? How do I get grounded in the faith? Well, Beloved, it's by loving Christ, by knowing his ways, by meditating on his word and praying in his word and seeing in his word and being just fully immersed in his word daily. That's how we stand firm in the faith. If you have God's laws in your hearts, then it influences your action. Just as David wrote in Psalm 119, I have hidden your law in my heart so that I may not sin against you. God's word is a lamp to our feet, beloved. Let us therefore... Not be discouraged when, the, when we walk as pilgrims in this world and the world attacks us. Why? Because we have God's light shining in our hearts and directing us so that we could go to glory in Christ Jesus. We should not shudder at the opposition of this world, but remain standing like Mordecai. Brothers and sisters, I've been preaching to Christians this evening. There may be some here not even Christian. If that's you, let me tell you this warning real quick. You cannot fulfill God's law. Matter of fact, you have gone astray. You have broken everything in God's law. There's no, no, not one who does good. We are swift to shed innocent blood, and, and the poison of asps or snakes are under our lips. That's who we are outside of Christ naturally. If that's you, I say repent and run to Christ so that Christ could give you a new heart, so that you could walk on, on that road to heaven, seeking to glorify him in everything you do. There may be some here who say they are Christian, who are living to fulfill the law in their lives as their own justification. If that's you, beloved, run away from that. If you think your faithfulness will get you into heaven, you are wrong because that robs God of all the glory. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, God is the just and justifier. Actually, Romans chapter 3, I'm sorry. I was meditating in Romans chapter 5 earlier. Um, God is the just and justifier, not you. He's the one that gives you a new name. Your work, if you're working for a righteous salvation, will not be good enough. It will fall short every single time. If you read the first four verses of Romans 4, it says, those who work, their work is credited to them as debt. 
but those who look to God in, in faith in Christ Jesus receives that ultimate righteousness imputed on them by faith and faith alone. Run to Christ. Beloved, I hope your hearts are refreshed this evening with great encouragement in God to abide in his ways. Namely, I hope you are transformed by God's Spirit so that you may walk in its light no matter how dark the world may get. I have three quick applications for us, beloved. That's based on Mordecai. One, the first one's principle. Let us strive to be people of principle surrounded on the principle of holiness and godliness, just like Mordecai. Our sanctification and piety, the old school verb or usage of that word, is based on living on God's word. We live to know God, and to know God, we do that from studying his word and abiding in his ways, namely his commandments. Second principle is being persistence, being persistent. Let us apply what Mordecai did by being persistent in God's law. That's what he did regardless of the threats of deaths around him. He stood firm for God in that moment, regardless if he died or not. I love what he said to Esther when he tells Esther, if you, if you don't stand for your people, guess what? God will raise up another. That's how strong his faith was. I love what Paul says in Philippians 3.14. I press towards the goal of the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore press on to that never-ending goal of honoring, glorifying, but most importantly, loving God. That is our duty. That's what we should be persistent on. Third application, prayer. I know this book doesn't even say prayer, but in chapter 4, it talks about fasting. And Mordecai fasted, not just him alone, but the whole nation of Israel. If you read your Old Testament, which I know you guys do, you know that fasting is never separate from prayer. So we can conclude that they prayed. Let us therefore pray and fast when we are under attack, just like the church did in Persia here. Let us be people of prayer, men and women of prayer, because that is the, one of the marks of true Christianity is those who look to Christ that reads, reads his word and comes to him in prayer. Let us end this day in courage for Christ. Regardless about those fiery winds outside, when they blow hard, when the culture tries to destroy the witness of the church, know this, it will not destroy the witness of the church nor her worship, especially when the church stands in God's ways or his word. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for this evening. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful congregation. Lord, we just pray that the words that were preached and spoken are words of affirmation and edification for their faith so that they could walk out of here and live bold lives just like Mordecai did in Persia. In your name, Christ Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.